This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Joining us right now is someone who can help us to understand how the borders are working. Valerie Crooks is a professor of geography at Simon Fraser University and the Canada Research Chair in Health Service Geographies and joins us now. Professor Crooks, thank you so much for taking some time for us. Uh, You're welcome. Let's look at our borders because with the high case count in India that we saw yesterday, highest case count in a day anywhere ever in this pandemic with flights that are coming in from different places. We've got a lot of people in this country kind of shaking their heads saying, what is going on at our borders? If we have variants of concern out there, as they've come to be called, what are we doing? What can you tell us about how our borders are working right now when it comes to any kind of travel? Right. So at this moment, yes, there is absolutely a lot of popular discussion, as you just said, with regard to the fact that we still have flights that are arriving um, into Canada, not just from India, but from other um, departure points that we're actually concerned about with regard to COVID-19 and especially variants. Um, We don't have restrictions in place right now for flights that are coming from those destinations. And one of the things that we really have to keep in mind is that flight restrictions is only a partial or it's an incomplete type of response to this situation because people can always reroute their travel. And we saw this with earlier restrictions coming from the UK, where people rerouted their travel, departing from a different country and arriving in Canada, ultimately. Um, so this brings us to the fact that the other sort of component that we have in place with responding to travel are the quarantine measures that we have that people are required to follow um, upon arrival. And these are the measures that we heard announced many, many weeks ago. Lots of, again, public discussion about the these measures being rolled out, including the quarantine hotel and requiring people to test before arrival, upon arrival, um, and then ultimately going home for the remainder of their quarantine period. Um, and the fact that with these border measures in place, we still see the arrival of a a new emerging concerning variant Um, here in Canada. It's showing us that actually there may need to be a tightening of those types of protections that we have in place because this this variant has arrived within the country, um, even though we have these measures in place. Dr. Valerie Crooks joining us, Professor of Geography at Simon Fraser University, Canada Research Chair in Health Service Geography. So really interesting, and this is something that I'm sure a lot of people have thought of, but let's say you were flying from country A, and that was on a list of, no, 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 we're not accepting anybody from country A. Well, then you fly to country B, and they're not on the list, and you get to where you want to go. So it's not as easy as creating a travel ban, obviously, when we look at one of the questions that will come up, it will be as simple as, well, then why don't we just stop all international flights to Canada? Why are they even happening? Is there an answer to that question? Well, that's a great question. And right now, the policy measures in place with the border, they sort of divide two different types of travelers. So essential travelers and those that are 
um, traveling for non-essential purposes. And there has been this viewpoint since the onset of the pandemic that there are reasons for people to have essential travel um, still even at this point in the pandemic, whether it could be matters of family reunification, people involved in economic and livelihood activities, um, as well as other forms of essential travel. So, for example, um, one of the groups of essential travelers are people who are going abroad for medical care where that care has been approved and they have documentation from their physician at home. So the idea of firmly closing the border, it, it, it brings up a lot of challenges in terms of what do we do in these essential kinds of travel cases. So this is a, a main reason why we still have movement across borders, because our our national response has been that there are essential forms of travel that we need to protect and enable um, and uh, have operate as safely as possible um, in the presence of this pandemic. And then just to sort of touch really quickly on what you were just commenting on in terms of my point earlier, that people will find ways around restrictions. If they're not allowed to travel to Canada from a certain departure point, they'll find another option. We've actually seen this discussion as well very publicly with regard to Canadian snowbirds return here, many of whom were looking for ways to avoid the hotel quarantine and were doing things like figuring out could they fly close to the border and then be driven across the border. So we see a lot of maneuvering um, around of people who are figuring out ways to still come into Canada or return to Canada despite the measures that have been put in place. There was a story this week about people who had figured out if they took a cab to one of the border stops they could get off the cab and they could use the land bridge essentially to walk across and then that that would be easier than going into quarantine so yeah lots of gray areas it sounds like yes exactly there and there are some people that have had many weeks or months of considering what these border measures are and figuring out opportunities to potentially circumvent them. And I'm not trying to suggest that that's the majority of the travelers, but I'm simply pointing out that right now, the measures that we have in place, many public health experts are suggesting that they are a patchwork type of response. They're not an ironclad response. And we can see that there are leaks in the system. Um, and these leaks need to be tightened immediately. And the way to do that is not simply with regard to restricting travel from certain departure points. That is an ineffective or partial response to the kind of um, complicated international situation that we're dealing with with regard to this pandemic. Dr. Valerie Crooks joining us, Professor of Geography at Simon Fraser University and Canada Research Chair in Health Service Geographies. We're always looking for suggestions for how things could be made better. Are you hearing any of those that make sense that maybe we could focus on as a country? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, there are, again, some experts in this area who are suggesting that maybe we need to look at um, successful models from other countries where we understand the kinds of measures that they have put in place at the border. Um, other people are suggesting that, for example, we should find ways to um, challenge those, those who arrive to the border by air travel and opt for a fine and returning home as opposed to the hotel quarantine, because this 
sort of exposes a leak or a crack in the system. But I'd like to make a larger point, which is that another thing that I think will help all of us make more informed decisions is if we have access to the best, highest quality information that's possible. And there's been an awareness that some of the information, especially with regard to the travel-related COVID-19 cases, um, there's not been as much transparency as not just policymakers, but the public needs in order to understand what's happening and to make informed decisions. And so that's another important component of trying to sort of push us forward in our collective decision-making is to make sure that we actually have, as members of the public, the best quality information that's available so that we can understand how travel is actually factoring into the pandemic. Well said. Well, you've given us a lot to think about and a, a great understanding of how things are playing out because the easiest way we would think is just to shut off the lights, turn, shut the borders, don't, but then you get into the gray areas of, well, this person has to go there, this person has to go there, and unless you're willing to say, no, there is, there is no reason for any kind of travel, and I, I think you'd have a tough time making that argument, then all of a sudden the gray areas exist and we do have travel. Could we do it better? As a final question, could we, Dr. Crooks, be doing better in what you have heard? I think there's a lot of opportunities to do things better. We're over a year into this pandemic. We have a year of insight and information. We can look back over the course of the year and probably already identify things that we should have done earlier on than we have. Um, and so I think that there's lots of opportunities to improve. And there is basically an ongoing learning system with regard to this pandemic where information is being taken in, it's being churned, and we're seeing policy responses coming forward. Um, but I, I absolutely think that there are opportunities for improvement. And I'm hopeful that those opportunities actually become realized and that we see positive changes happening very soon. Well, we appreciate your time today, Dr. Crooks. Thank you so much for outlining this in, uh, in a way I think we can all follow. We appreciate the time. You're welcome. That is Dr. Valerie Crooks, Professor of Geography at Simon Fraser University and Canada Research Chair in Health Service Geographies because we're seeing the reports of different strains being able to enter Canada, and you wonder, well, how... Why can't it happen that way? And that's one of the things we wanted to investigate today. Let's look around the world as we do sometimes. We've been to a lot of different places to try and see what is going on in the fight against COVID-19. Earlier this week, we talked about South Korea and what had been going well. What had they done that had allowed them a little bit more flexibility and had made their lives maybe a little easier than what we're all being asked to do in our lives right now. Well, let's go to the other extreme, because things were going pretty well and are going fairly well in South Korea. India is a different story. India is a very different story. So why? Why is it such a different story? Why are we seeing the request for flights from a country like India stopped outright? And we'll get to what the premiers have sent to the prime minister's office before the end of the show. Joining us right now is Dr. Tim Sly from the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. Dr. Sly, thank you so much for being here. Please, please be with you, Mike. The number that 
came from India yesterday, and it looks like today's number is very similar, is absolutely huge in terms of new cases. We're talking over 300,000. Now, India has quite a large population as a country, but still, can you shed some light on what is happening there? Yeah, they've exceeded uh, 312,000 in one day, and that exceeded the uh, U.S. uh, maximum, which was about 300,000 a day. That was back on January the 8th. So they've now got the world record for a number of... But not that anybody really looks at per day, because these things are spiking up and down all the time. You look at least at a a seven-day average. But nevertheless, as you said it, it's, it's an enormous figure. But I should point out that in the terms of per... Uh, cases uh, um, per 100,000 per day, India, uh, Iraq, and Canada all share the current position of about 20. So in terms of the huge number of population they have there, yes, the absolute number is enormous, but the number per 100,000, uh, India, Canada, and Iraq are the same. So, so we can look and say, wow, things seem to be going off in India. What's happening there? You take a statistic and say, well, don't look too far. Kind of look around because Canada's in the same boat. Oh, absolutely. I mean, look at those other figures that are around. At one end of the scale, you've got Turkey and Uruguay at about 71 and 78 per 100,000. But at the other end of the scale, you've got uh, got UK, which is about 3.7, or Portugal, about 4.7. Uh, you know, these are, these are incredibly low numbers. China is zero. It's not even countable on the same scale. So we are we are, are not doing too badly, but we're certainly in the middle of the pack of, of the of the bad numbers too. So we shouldn't be packing ourselves on the back at the moment. But India <laughs> India was an interesting problem because, as you said it right on the top there, they they took a uh, an interesting sort of attempt to clamp down on their first wave, really somewhere between first and second wave, but they didn't follow through. That was the problem, and it seems that they've let now, they've let the guard down, and they've started to allow uh, all of those weddings and those religious ceremonies and the, and the Ganges, you know, and the, all those uh, stuff like that. And that's, uh, you, they were tracing enormous numbers following that kind of stuff. So we began to see uh, numbers begin to increase, and now it's way out of control, such that the medical system is collapsing, the, the oxygen is now given out in some places. People just die uh, at oxygen saturation of about 50 should be up around, uh, you know, 95. We're talking with Dr. Tim Sly, School of Occupational Health and Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. And we're looking kind of around the world a little bit. And you're right, some of the images that you get that are showing vans that are being used to treat people in India, where you've got a van and inside you've got somebody on oxygen. You think, how how could this happen? But at the same time, it is happening in a lot of places. We've got some makeshift operations happening in Canada. Take a look earlier today, the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario admitted their first adult. So we've seen that happening in Toronto as well, where children's hospital beds are being used for adults when you would never think that would be a problem. Now, in India, you mentioned they attempted to lock things down. Would it, would it be called even a lockdown at the beginning for their first wave? They, they attempted to be tough. Was that successful in any way? No, there was a, it was an attempt, and at that point, the numbers hadn't begun to take off at all. 
So it, it looked as if India was keeping its numbers in, uh, in surprisingly good shape. But then along came, and, and I, I suspect actually it had to do with the, the variants as well, uh, because that seemed to coincide with that. I'm just looking at the charts for just about all of the major countries around the world, and they all took this great leap. And uh, we had underestimated Quite, uh, quite frankly, underestimated the, uh, the, the, the power, the consequence of these new areas. For example, Britain, it took over, it's almost 100% of the isolations there uh, were the new variants. Uh, Canada exceeded about 50% about a week or so ago, and other countries variously, and that's, that's what really contributed it. It's, it's, it's not that the variant necessarily, the, the, the initial group of variants, because there's, there's hundreds of them actually, they fall into several major categories. It's not that they, they suddenly brought immediate death and serious illness, but the fact that they could spread to far larger numbers of people that was what was driving the increase in all of these countries. It's almost like having a one pandemic inside another pandemic. The original one has almost disappeared. The, it's taking over the second one now. Dr. Slyer, are we looking at perhaps this COVID-19 virus behaving this way forever, that we'll just continue to have different variants, different variants, different variants? Well, that's, that's of course, a, a nightmarish situation. But, it, no, I think what we're going to be seeing is that in the long term, the vaccines, because, remember, the, vac- the mRNA vaccines are not that difficult to tweak and adjust to new variants coming along. They're much easier than the old-style vaccines, which are the killed virus and so on. But, no, in the long term, vaccines will get us out of this. They always do. It's the end of the pandemics. But in the short term, it's not going to be soon enough. Remember, it takes at least a couple of weeks to get your antibodies up so that you're fairly well protected. Uh, and you really need that second shot to boost it up to the top as well. <clears throat> Meanwhile, the numbers are doubling in far less, that period, less than that period of time. So what we need to do right now is double up on that on those precautions, you know, making sure that we're distancing. Don't fool around with, you know, the, the, the knuckleheads are saying, burn your mask and it's all a hoax. Forget them completely. I don't know what you do with those, Mike. Actually, spray them down with Lysol and put them in some field or something. I don't know what you do. But the point is we've got to in, in more intensify the normal protection that keeps people protected from other people. This virus, even though the new variants come along, it still infects you in the same way. It doesn't hang around on the street corner ambushing you. It goes from person to person within seconds. So keep people away from other people. If they're fairly close, put mask on. Double mask is not a bad idea. And make sure that, uh, that uh, eight, more than one person inside in the inside should wear a mask. Dr. Tim Sly joining us from the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. We've heard that vaccines will help to put a an end to this or or take it down to the trickle that maybe china is experiencing right now but if we look at other countries if we look at those countries that are starting to see real headway the uk for instance is is a great example of a group of countries that are seeing great headway is it the vaccines that are ultimately doing it in that country or is it other factors as well well, where you've got a country with a vast, uh, a large proportion of the population that have, that have been vaccinated, yes, we're beginning to see that level off and go down. It's very successful. Britain has done that. It's quite remarkable. That's why it's got its rate per 100,000 a day. New cases is down to, you know, 2.3, something like that, 3.7, that area. This is good. 
but uh, so but we remember we were sh- we were late off the starting block right i mean we 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 were groping around for hoping that people would send us vaccines from overseas because we didn't have the facility to make them ourselves so that that was a failure really i mean we canada has the ability to make vaccines but we've only been concentrating at small doses of things like ebola we do world leading ebola vaccines but not on the scale needed for this kind of thing so in the future who knows maybe we need a homegrown vaccination industry that's that's for the next coronavirus outbreak remember we had 3 world class uh, coronavirus events in the last 20 years this won't be the last one there'll be others yeah, isn't it isn't it wild to think of that that we've had three, but the other ones just for whatever reason, right, didn't take in the way this one has. Well, those other two had far greater case fatality rates, far greater. The SARS one was about ten to eleven percent. The one we're in right now is is approximately one uh, percent chance of dying if you are a case, taking the whole population as a whole. The SARS one was about ten to eleven percent, and MERS in the Middle East is about uh, 33 34%. But they weren't able to spread quite as rapidly. And so it was easy to bring them to a halt, not before they even got to a, an epidemic stage, just to, no, nowhere near pandemic, just by precautions and quarantining and so on. But this one spreads far more effectively, and that's why it's out of control. As a last question, we're talking with Dr. Tim Sly, School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. Dr. Sly, when we talk about and we were mentioning the COVID alert app and the fact that very few people on the grand scale actually downloaded and made use of the app. And and who knows what it was? Was it mistrust? Whatever. We are going to see people who will not be vaccinated. Does that keep this thing, COVID-19, alive? Does it keep it circulating and problematic? Oh, there's a basket of good questions there, Mike, I'm telling you. Um, yeah, let's go to your second bit first. Uh, it, it's worrying. Uh, the first people to line up, of course, uh, and the, and the, and, and, uh, uh, the president of the states uh, discussed this within the last 24 hours. The first group of people were enthusiastic. The last percentage, the last uh, half, uh, 50%, are going to be more difficult to get in there. They're either non-believers or the hesitant people. And we need to get the original, the original version of the virus. Is we needed something like 61, 62% to be vaccinated to bring it to a halt. That's the herd immunity. With the new variants, we calculate that to be about 72% to be vaccinated before this thing actually stops. Now, that means that we've got to vaccinate about 75% because these vaccines aren't 100% themselves. So it's difficult. It's easy, easy to get the first lot in there, but the, it, it, let's, the vaccines arriving are one thing, but let's hope people roll up their sleeves for, to get up to that last 75% is what we need before we bring this to a halt. That's worrying me, actually. Hmm. Well, Dr. Sly, I know we'll be talking again. Really appreciate your insight all the way along, and please keep safe. Certainly you too. Bye-bye, Mike. That is Dr. Tim Sly, School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. So, yeah, there are things that, that are worrying him. How do you get to that level? Will we get to that level? Right now it seems to be about supply. What about when that supply just turns to demand? What about when that supply is there but you're wondering, yeah, who 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 has not been vaccinated is going to say, I'm not doing it? I'm looking forward to vaccination day. For me, it's tomorrow. And I know Aubrey has already emailed and said, for him, it is tomorrow. And I'll tell you what it's like. Let's take a COVID break. 
What provides great COVID breaks? Good movie. They seem harder to find because they haven't been making as many movies. That's why they've put off putting out, what, Top Gun 2? That's still on the way. Is that ever going to be released? So a good movie can do it. One of the easiest things, sink into a ball game. Sink into what the Toronto Blue Jays are doing. They've got a lot of fun guys on that team. Is there anyone more fun than Vladimir Guerrero Jr.? Is there anyone that smiles more in sports right now than Vladimir Guerrero Jr.? The Blue Jays were smiling last night. They beat the Red Sox, who have been off to a really good start, 6-3. to Let's talk about the Blue Jays and kind of get a sense of where things sit for them, being 8-10, and being tied for third in the American League East with Baltimore, but still only being three and a half games out of first place. Ben Nicholson-Smith is with Sportsnet.ca and joins us now. Ben, how are things? I'm good, Mike. Good to have baseball back and to be watching the Jays, even if they're not necessarily playing to their full potential just yet this year. (laughs) But hey, you know what? That's part of the fun. You don't want someone to come out and be playing well above their heads and you think, oh, could this keep up? And then over 162 games, it definitely does. And a lot of the talk about the Blue Jays is we haven't seen anything yet. So let's talk about maybe what we have seen, because there's been a lot of discussion that the bats would be big, and while some bats have been big, we mentioned Vladimir Guerrero Jr., let's get your grade on on the offense. How has that gone for the Jays this year? Oh, man, the offense has definitely been below expectations, and part of that, I think, has to do with uh, the absences, of course, of George Springer, Teoscar Hernandez. Those guys might be back soon, but I, I think... Vlad and Bo have been spectacular. Everyone else has basically been a disappointment. So I'd probably give the offense something like a C plus. Okay, C plus. And then pitching was always that. I don't know what we're going to get from pitching this year. How would you rate the way that pitching has been for the Blue Jays so far? Well, it's kind of crazy because they have by ERA the best pitching staff in the American League right now, and their bullpen has been among the major league leaders as well. So it really um, has been a group that's exceeded expectations. So I think, I mean, it's got to be an A or maybe even an A+. plus. I mean, they're, they're leading the league in ERA. It's hard to really ask for a lot more than that. And yet, when you run down, you see some pretty big names. Robbie Ray missed time at the beginning. Jordan Romano injured. Nate Pearson injured. Julian Merriweather injured. Maybe these are not necessarily names that that everybody knows because some of them come out of the bullpen. Tyler Chatwood injured. What would you say about the injury situation on this team, even among its pitchers? Oh, yeah, they've, and, and that's another part of it, right, because they've had to overcome a lot of a lot of injuries already. I mean, if you had if you had said uh, a few months ago that the Jays would be without all of those key pitchers and still have the best ERA in the American League, I mean, that really would be surprising because this team was supposed to be and still is uh, a team that's built around its offense and its lineup. And so to see them uh, performing this well when it comes to their pitching staff in the face of those injuries really adds to it. And I think, you know, much as, you know, the offense is likely to, to rebound and probably perform a lot better, I don't think we're expecting this team to lead the league in ERA all year, but the Jays will take it as long as they can offer this kind of performance. 
<laughs> Why not? Ben Nichols and Smith joining us from Sportsnet.ca as we talk Toronto Blue Jays. How about the injuries on the offensive side? There were a lot of Jays fans very excited when George Springer was signed. That was one of those monumental things that you think, really? Really? George Springer is coming and going to play for the Toronto Blue Jays? And he hasn't been seen yet because of, what, not one but two injuries? Yeah, exactly. He started with the oblique, so basically impacting his ability to rotate and swing. Very important for a baseball player. And by all accounts, (laughs) that is healed now. But at this point, he's still dealing with the quad injury. And as a center fielder, of course, he's got to be able to run, got to be able to run the bases field. So that's coming along really well, according to everything that we know. And we're going to find out a bit more from Ross Atkins, the GM, later this afternoon. So we might have a sense um, as to when... Springer will return, but whenever he does, he's such an impactful player. He's so talented. He's still young in the prime of his career. He can do a lot of really different things on a baseball field with his speed, with his power, with his defense. So a really well-rounded player, and whenever he does come back, it's going to make the Blue Jays a way better team. And you mentioned Teoscar Hernandez, who has been out because of COVID-19 protocols. What does he bring to the team when he comes back? I just, you know, this team has been missing power. We've seen so many at-bats where it's Joe Panic or Santiago Espinal or the catchers aren't hitting. I mean, it's it's a team that has not had a, a ton of power, and yet it's supposed to be built around bats like Teoscar Hernandez, who can hit the ball out of any ballpark against any pitcher. And we saw that last year when he won the Silver Slugger. We saw it even in the end of the 2019 season when he had a great finish, OPS over 900 after being recalled from the minor leagues in early June of that year. So he's someone who should, and he wasn't off to the greatest start before hitting the IL with COVID, but he should be able to give this team a lot of power and just make this lineup that much scarier for opposing pitchers. When we look at the division right now, sometimes this will happen in baseball, right, Ben, where the year will begin and you'll think, well, Boston's probably not going to be that great, and they're in first place. And, well, the Yankees, ooh, look out for the Yankees, and they're in last place. I mean, the Yankees are, what, one of three teams in Major League Baseball with six wins and nobody has five? It's uh, a little nutty to think that way. When do things start to balance out? Are we further enough, far enough along into the season that we'll start to see the, the water come to the level? I don't think we're quite there, and you mentioned, you know, at least one example there in the in the Yankees where it's, it's just it's too early, I think, to draw a ton of conclusions. I think on a more granular level, I mean, we can say Vlad Jr. is breaking out, or we can say that Urias with the Dodgers is having a great season, or Mercedes with the White Sox is a breakout star. But on the team level, it takes so much to really – persuade me or most of the people that I talk to that, you know, after 18, 20 games, that's enough. So I think the, the point where that starts to turn and you start to really say, all right, I mean, this, this is what's in front of us. We have to start believing it more now. It's probably more like the end of May. And if after two months, the Yankees are still in this position in the standings, then there's probably reason to be really concerned. But for now, I still think the Yankees are a force to be reckoned with in this league. And that just makes the league more fun, right? Always. Always. You want to see the Yankees <laughs> as the villains, right? It's, I, I think it's more fun when the Yankees are good. And, I mean, for, for a lot of us, I mean, it's been, what, 25 years since they were below 500? So it's kind of the only version of the Yankees that, it, that you can even imagine at this point. 
Yeah, right. Ben Nicholson-Smith joining us from Sportsnet.ca. Ben, one final thing, and that is just Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and the year that he's having. And Bo Bichette, you mentioned, is having a great year. But Vladimir Guerrero Jr. seems to be one of the happiest guys. Obviously, you've got to interact with him virtually now, but you've had a chance to interact with him personally. Is he always kind of like that? I think that is his personality. That's That's the sense I've always gotten is that he does – has this kind of goofy side where he likes to joke around and play little pranks or, you know, uh, congratulate teammates. Um, I, I think that that's always been there. And I think now that he's hitting and playing better, then he's able to show it a bit more and feel as though his contributions are really making a difference and he can, he can enjoy uh, being in the spotlight a bit more instead of feeling the weight of the pressure that he definitely faced when he first arrived in the majors. So it's great to see. I mean, the young players in the game are always so fun to watch. And the Jays have some of the most exciting ones right now with guys like Vlad and Bo. Hey, that's, that's fun to know. And, and hey, good for him because how many guys that he came up with did he get compared to saying, oh, he's not doing what that guy's doing. He's not doing what that guy's doing. And that had to be tough. Oh, no doubt. It definitely would be, especially when some of those guys are his friends, right? Tatis Jr. or Acuna. He knows them, and he wasn't performing on their level, but you know now he is, and the great thing is there's room for a lot of stars in baseball, and so if Vlad Jr. can keep this up, then he's going to join those ranks. Great stuff. Well, Ben, we really appreciate the time today. Thank you. Enjoy the off day. I know you're working now on your off day, but uh, we'll see what happens this weekend against the Tampa Bay Rays. Yeah, should be fun. Thanks for having me on, Mike. That's Ben Nicholson-Smith from Sportsnet.ca. Jays do open a series on Global News Radio 980 CFPL against Tampa Bay, and that will happen tomorrow. We'll have a game for you at 7 o'clock. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.